Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Good morning. Would you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2? Here we are on the last Lord's Day of 2015. All of our Advent candles have been lit. Christmas is come and gone. Uh, our Genesis sermon series we won't return to in the, until the second week of January, and it turns out it's pretty difficult to choose a text to preach from when you're in the middle of liturgical no man's land. But then Phil Moyer uh, pointed out to me, um, he noticed that uh, in the worship document that I put together as the, the one who plans worship services, that I was referring to the Christmas Eve service as the fifth service of Advent, which apparently is wrong. It's the first service of Christmas, or Christmas tide, which traditionally is a season of time that begins at sunset on the 24th of December and ends on January 6th with what's called Epiphany. And, and so that's all the direction I needed. Pastor Lucas, poor guy, can, can, can do whatever he's going to do next week, but I'm going to continue on preaching about Christmas. And then I came in this morning, I noticed that all the decorations up, it's a great confirmation of that decision. <laughs> it's not Christmas exactly, though, it's that portion of Luke 2 that pertains to the, the month following the birth of Christ. Let's read our text together. This is God's word, and it is eternally true. This is Luke 2, 21. And when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then as a widow at the age of 84. She never left the temple, 
serving night and day with fastings and prayers, at that very moment she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city of Nazareth. The child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we read in this passage of the circumstances that first brought Jesus to his father's house in Jerusalem. Luke tells us of two ceremonies that were performed upon Jesus in the first days of his life. Circumcision and presentation, dedication, or what's, what is more properly called, but awkwardly called, firstborn redemption. The first of these ceremonies is the rite of circumcision. Circumcision was a very important sign for Israel. It signified two things, both a cleansing from sin by the putting off or the cutting off of the flesh and an adopting into the family of God. And so it's supposed that the one receiving it was both a sinner and a stranger, a sinner needing to be forgiven and a stranger who needed to be brought near to God. This teaches us Not about Jesus, but about ourselves, this sign. About our nature. From the moment of our conception, what's true of us? In Adam, we have fallen. We have inherited a nature that is sinful. And we are, therefore, strangers to God and to his people. We've inherited the stain of original sin. And lest we're cleansed by God himself... There's no hope for cleansing. None of our schemes of self-purification, self-cleansing, are, 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 they're all empty and vain. Isaac Watts wrote these words, No bleeding bird, nor bleeding beast, no hyssop branch, nor sprinkling priest, nor running brook, nor flood, nor sea, can wash the dismal stain away. God alone can cleanse from sin. Circumcision then was a sign of these things that pointed Israel, that's its intended purpose, was to point Israel to both their need of forgiveness and to God who could give it to them. It also testified to them of the fact that sin separates us from God and his people and that we stand in need of being brought near by God. We are by nature not God's children, but Satan's children. And unless God plucks us from Satan's kingdom and transfers us to the kingdom of his beloved son, we remain strangers to God and even his enemies. And so circumcision also stood as a declaration of being brought near by God and of his willingness to adopt us as his children, make us part of his family. Now, all of us who know our sin who are humble before God and will confess our sins, all of us can easily understand our need for such a sign that testifies of these things. But what's hard to understand is why Jesus Christ would need such a sign. He was neither a sinner nor a stranger. So why did he receive this sign declaring that he was both of these things? Well, we have a favorite song around here, The Fullness of Time. And it opens up for us that glorious verse from Galatians, which reads that when the fullness of time came, 
God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law. Circumcision was commanded by the law, and Jesus submitted himself to God's law in every particular so that he might, in his own words, fulfill all righteousness. He even submitted to those ceremonies of the law which declared him to be a sinner, like circumcision, so that he might be made like his brothers in all things, like us in all things. He might so closely identify with us to show himself able to bear our sins in his body on the cross so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is what is declared to us and taught to us by Jesus submitting to circumcision, that he is truly our Emmanuel, God with us in every respect, with us. Now the ceremony, that was conducted or performed on Jesus on the eighth day of his life, and he was also given the name Jesus at that time. We can understand this. We have still a remnant of that tradition of naming being tied to some sort of sacred act in our baptismal services. We all know that you give your children names at the hospital, <laughs> but we, we have this sort of little indication of an older history here in our service when Tim asks, Father, name your child, and you, pre- you present a name, and he is named. Well, this is what, was happened, what happened with Jesus. He was given the name that was pro- provided by the angel before his birth at the time of his circumcision. But the, the ceremony that brought Jesus to the temple at this time was something that would have applied to the 40th day of his life or because it's only after that that Mary, his mother, would have been allowed into the temple. She, as a woman who had just given birth, was considered unclean for a period of days, for 40 days, and then would have brought her child to the temple to present him to the Lord and to pay a redemption price. It says in our text that um, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. This is a quote from the Old Testament. And the reason that that this is said is that it harkens back to the exodus from Egypt when God delivered his people from their bondage by a final plague that took the lives of all of Egypt's firstborn. Because God spared the firstborn of Israel in that plague, he claimed them for himself and said that Israel must buy their firstborn back for the price, in the case of a male child, for five shekels of silver. And so Mary and Joseph were going up to do two things. They were going up to offer the turtle doves for Mary's purification offering, and also to buy Jesus back from God as their firstborn child. Now again, Christ who had just descended from the Father, God had sent him here, and he descended from the bosom of the Father, did not need to be presented to God, nor did he need to be bought from God, but again, so that he might show himself to be the fulfillment of the law, And in this case, the firstborn among many brothers, the consummate firstborn child, he was presented there by his parents. And so we see the amazing humility of Jesus Christ, the great lawgiver who submitted himself to every particular of his own law to show that that law is fulfilled for us in him and that we can be free from the curse of it 
and set free from a slavish obedience to God and made able to obey him from the heart freely and with joy. So that's what brought Jesus at that time to the temple. And here he has two extraordinary encounters with um, two of God's people. It was written in the Law of Moses that on the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter would be confirmed. And we see that upon Christ's first appearance at the temple in Jerusalem, the place where important matters were judged and decided, that God supplied the necessary confirmation for his son in two unlikely, probably non-important people, but nonetheless people filled with God's spirit and very godly who were looking with hope for his appearing. First we see that Christ encountered a man named Simeon. We're not told who Simeon was, but only what he was like. We're told several things about him. First, that he was righteous and devout. Righteous refers to the second table of God's law. Another word for it would be just, how we live in relationship to our neighbors. He was righteous in, in regards to his neighbor. And devout has a more worshipful quality of word, and it points to the first table of the law, that, that Simeon was known as someone who gave himself faithfully with all his heart to the worship of the true God in a true way. Both of these tables of the law agree with each other, and Simeon was known as being a keeper of both. Now this should be our aim as well. We are to love the Lord with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We are to be devout. And we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. We're to be righteous in our dealings with our neighbors. If we have such a desire in us, where does it come from? Did you dig down deep and, and work it up in yourself? No, if we have such a desire to keep God's law, if we bear the fruit of that desire in our lives, we know that we have this gift from God. For apart from God, only sin and evil dwells in us. But God is greater than our hearts, and he is able to put in us a godly principle, godly desires who seek to please him and to live righteously in this world. He also gives us new natures that begin to hunger and thirst after righteousness. And he makes us able, by his spirit, to say with King David, Oh, how I love your law. This is what he had done for Simeon, and it's what he does for all of his people. But while there's a good principle that God puts in us by his spirit, we must strive still against our flesh. You know that your flesh works against you, fights against you being devout worshiping God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You know that your flesh also works against you, being righteous with your neighbor. It makes you want to steal, makes you want to commit adultery, it makes you want to do these things that are evil. And we must strive against it with the power of God's spirit and put the deeds of darkness, which continue to dwell in us, to death. So what do we learn from Simeon? Well, we learn from Simeon that he's a good example that's gone before us in this. 
He's an old man, and as an old man, he's lived a long life of doing the hard work of fighting against his flesh and putting his evil passions and desires to death and subduing them, bringing them into subjection to God's law. God wants all of us as his children to be described as Simeon, righteous and devout. The second thing we're told is that Simeon was numbered among those who were looking expectantly for the Messiah, who Luke here names the consolation of Israel. That's a very sweet name for Christ. Jesus, the comforter of Israel. Jesus, the great empathizer of Israel. The the consolation, the one who brings comfort. What a warm expectation this man had of the promised Messiah. It must have been Simeon who supplied the first question and answer to the Heidelberg Catechism. It's a very warm, lovely opening to a catechism. It says, what is thy only comfort in life and death? And the answer is that I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, etc. Is Christ your only comfort in life and death? Or is it your retirement plan? Is it your finishing your degree, getting an A on the test? Is your only comfort in life and death that your business succeed or that you succeed in some endeavor of yours? This is the level that most of us live our lives, right? This is, this is the day-to-day baseline of our lives, that we measure our comfort, our ultimate comfort on the basis of trivial things, things that are passing away, things that do matter, but are, that pale and are not worth mentioning in comparison to a life of eternity with Jesus. Is Jesus your consolation, your, your comfort, as he was Simeon's? Thirdly, we're told that the Holy Spirit was upon him. This is not a reference to um, the spirit of adoption or regeneration at work in him. If all we had to go on were the previous two um, statements about him, we would know that much already. Nobody exhibits godliness. Nobody devotes themselves to God and seeks after him with all their heart without the Holy Spirit at work. So we learn one thing, that the Holy Spirit was at work and has been at work in all God's people in all times and places. What we learn here, though, what we're being told, is that Simeon had that special spiritual gift of prophecy, which is uncommon and not given to all Christians. But here he he is said to have been filled with a spirit of prophecy. And, And both he and... Um, Anna, who comes after him, were prophets of God. And this is, a f- beginning, this is uh, after 400 years of silence on the part of the Holy Spirit. You know, no scripture had been written, no word from the Lord had come for hundreds of years. This was the beginning of the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel. He said, it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. 
and your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. As I said, it's not likely that Simeon or Anna were, were anybody of importance. And yet here the Spirit was poured out on them and they were given the gift of prophecy, the ability to see and perceive things that normal, the normal eye cannot see or perceive. And this was a sign that Jesus was soon to come. Indeed, it had been revealed to Simeon by the Holy Spirit, that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And see him he did, prompted by the Spirit to enter the temple at, on just that day, at just that time. Simeon perceived in Joseph and Mary and their little baby, what? Surely, looking from the outside, nothing of, of any significance. This was just an, another poor mother and father bringing their child to be presented to the Lord and be redeemed for the price. Certainly nothing to marvel at here. But what did he see? He looked through eyes that were opened by the Holy Spirit and he saw God's appointed salvation. He saw the light of the whole world. He saw being fulfilled that the people who were walking in darkness will see a great light in this child, in this this young one, and he also saw the glory of his people Israel. What did he do then? Well, he wasn't content just to see this little baby, but he had took him into his arms, a very affectionate embrace. Yeah, this has expressed his extreme joy and his affection for the Lord. He, he had to have him close to his heart, took him into his arms. What would you have done if you were there? Some of us are demonstrable people, but not very many clear note people are like that. Have you noticed? <laughs> Archie, you might be demonstrable, but not very many of us. Most of us are stoic, reserved, thinking thoughts, but not expressing them. If we were to judge by our, our, our bodily activity in this worship service, how, what would we have to say we would have done on that, uh, at that day if we'd been in Simeon's shoes? Samuel Johnson is famous for having said, no man is a hypocrite in his pleasures. All of us, even the most reserved ones of us, have some area of our life where we will get agitated. We will get excited. There will be a twinkle in our eye. At the very least, we will do something to show our love for something in this world. Most everyone in the past two weeks has been showing their enthusiasm and their love for what? Star Wars. But this fulfilled, this began and ended Simeon's bucket list. This one moment. This is all he had hoped for and he was, he was able to say as it was happening, I'm ready to die. I've got it all. He took the child into his arms. He was so filled with joy. 
He blessed God and, and said, or he sang, this is one of those things in scripture, it, it could indicate that they sang a song. And the church has used both Mary's Magnificat and the Song of Moses and the Nunc Dimittis, as this is called in, in Latin, Simeon's song, um, as songs that they have sung throughout history, called the canticles. So he either said or he sang, we don't know. And um, it began in this way, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. Now, this is very profound. Simeon was ready to die. Having held this baby, having seen this baby, he was ready to die. He, and he said, I'm ready to die, and I am going to go peacefully. I, I have been satisfied. I have no fear. I know that this child is the answer to all dilemmas, all problems. He has come, and I'm satisfied. I'm ready to die. Are you like Simeon? Prepared to die. Here's what Charles Spurgeon says about us in terms of our readiness to die. He says, the flesh clings to the earth. It is dust and owes, owns affinity to the ground out of which it was taken. It loathes to part from Mother Earth. Even old age with its infirmities does not make men really willing to depart out of this world. By nature, we hold to life with a terrible tenacity, and even when we sigh over the evils of life, we repine concerning its ills, and, and repine concerning its ills, even when we complain and we think things are so bad, and fancy that we wish ourselves away, it is probable that our readiness to depart lies only upon the surface. But deep down in our hearts, we have no will to go. I think that's very true. And yet Simeon, with the eyes of faith, looked upon this infant Jesus and was ready to depart out of this world. Can you say that with Simeon? Well, if you are a Christian, you can. For Jesus has established peace for us. He has come to bring about that kind of readiness for death. He has come to remove the sting of it from our lives. This is what Hebrews says about Jesus and the purpose of his coming. That he came to share in flesh and blood and to partake of our nature that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. He's come to set us free from the fear of death. And seeing him, seeing him is believing. And believing brings about that kind of peace and readiness for death. Have you seen the Lord's anointed? Have you looked upon him? Have you fixed your gaze upon him? You're, you're a man, you're a woman, you're weak, you will fear. But when we fix our eyes on Jesus, he removes that fear from us. He takes away all of our, all of our fear.
Simeon goes on to offer some profitable words of prophecy for Christ's mother, Mary. He tells her that her child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. This is to prepare Mary for hard things to come. You know, here's a baby in her arms, a newborn, very sweet, very easy for a mother to love and very easy for everybody else to overlook. It's just a little baby. And now he's beautiful and sweet. But what happens when he grows up and begins his ministry? Is he beautiful or sweet? He is not. It's often said about him that Jesus is, is you know, pale-faced and, and soft and tender. And I'm sure he definitely had tenderness. But Jesus was appointed by God to occasion the fall and the rise of many and to be opposed. He had a prophet's tongue. There was no hiding, there was no running or escaping from the gaze of Jesus and the tongue of Jesus. He spoke truth to those who were around him. And men would trip over him to their own destruction. Christ was a lightning rod of a man. He's described in the book of Revelation as having a sword that comes out of his mouth with which he slays the nations. And this was true of him in his ministry on earth. He had a sharp sword of a tongue. It says that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Well, Jesus used this ability to his advantage as a prophet and perceived the very deepest things about people. He sent a a rich man away sad because he had told him to give away all his money. He made religious leaders froth at the mouth because he told them that they were murderers and, and blind guides and serpents. And of course Mary had to have uh, you know, had a front row seat to this in her son. And so here's a a preparation, a word of preparation from the Lord to Mary not to take offense at her son, at her own son. This little baby who's so beautiful now will grow up to be offensive. And she must not take offense at him. And so God prepared her for the difficult ministry of her son, which would, of course, end in his own violent crucifixion, which she was present for. And this is why it says, or Simeon says to her, a sword will even pierce your, you, Mary. As it anticipates her having to watch, and just think of a mother, the anguish that she would feel watching her son be killed. Are you thankful for this aspect of Christ's ministry? that he is a rock of stumbling. Thankfully, Calvin says it's accidental that men, um, that he is appointed for men to fall and be destroyed. This is not actually his primary purpose. His primary purpose is to raise men again to newness of life. He's appointed for all to stumble on. 
You understand that? That's the point of his prophetic words. He speaks and cuts to the heart so that you will fall and die in your fleshly, sinful nature, but so that you will be raised again to newness of life. Now, if you don't receive this ministry, it's not his fault. He wounds in order to heal. And you must be wounded to be healed by Jesus. It's one of the great faults in the church today is that uh, people are brought to Jesus without first being brought through the, minist- the prophetic ministry of his word which cuts them to the heart. Or that they are compelled to come to Jesus out of desperation. They rather are drawn to him because he said to give them a better life than they already have. Calvin calls this ministry of, of, of Jesus's, which men stumble over, an accident, as it were, not his fault, because he wounds in order to heal. But not all men are appointed unto salvation. And you know that you have been appointed unto salvation if you love the Lord's rebukes. If you cherish them, if you're made alive by them. He is a rock of stumbling and of offense to those who are appointed unto judgment. But for those who receive his wounds in humility, Christ is not a rock of offense, but rather a choice and a precious stone upon which a life of strength and godliness can be built. Are you surprised and offended when the world hates Jesus or you because of him. This is why he was appointed. And don't take offense at him. Mary's being prepared by God for this ministry of her son. Lastly, Christ encounters sweet Anna there in the temple. And here we have the second witness to his authenticity as the Son of God. Anna the prophetess came and greeted him as well. She, she wasn't old, really. She was, do you see it? It's very politically put. She's advanced in years. And I'd say she was 84 years young from the looks of it. We sense here her godly youthfulness, as it is in the, says in the psalm, that the righteous man will flourish like the palm tree, he will grow like a cedar in Lebanon, planted in the house of the Lord, they will flourish in the courts of our God, they will still yield fruit in old age, they will be full of sap and very green. This is Anna, 84 years young in the temple of God. She, she was a widow after only seven years of marriage. And look at how she spent her life. She's not idle, as Paul warns widows not to be going from house to house as a gossip or as a busybody. But she devoted herself to the worship of God, service in the temple. She, some um, commentators believe that she was likely given a room there because she was found to be so helpful and useful to the ministry of the temple. She probably dwelt in a small room there, and that's why it said she was there day and night. She was just around the clock, on call, for anything that needed to be done 
as a part of God's worship. Now, women, are you willing to learn from the example of Anna? No. Not all of us have been put in the condition of widowhood. Times are different now than they were then. We don't have a temple where all of us come to and um, there's not the work of that and service of that temple anymore, but rather where two or three are gathered in God's name, he is there, and so the temple is here or wherever we are together. And it's all around the world. So allowing for all of those differences and factoring in them and removing all of those excuses or those deductions, you're left still with her consistency in, her, in devotion. You're left with her holiness. You're left with her prayer life. You're left with her example of dignity, helpfulness in the ministry. You're left with her thanksgiving, says that she came up and gave thanks to God. Are you willing to be like Anna, women, and to devote yourself to the Lord in this way, to prayer and godliness, to caring for the needs of the church, to encouraging the weary, caring for the sick, both in body and soul, washing the feet of the saints? We need more women and more mothers in, in Israel, women. You've seen Mary Lee give her life in this way, this constantly in the minivan. Or what does she drive now? I just remember seeing Mary Lee all over town in that minivan for years, going th- this and that place to care for the needs of the saints, devoted to the work of the ministry. Now, I know, as I said, Mary Lee's in a different time of life, yes. So is Anna. But are you growing up into this, women? Are you learning more and more to carry in your heart the needs of all on a daily basis, giving yourself to prayer and encouragement to those who need it? You know, the the sad secret is Mary Lee is going to die. Are, we, are you giving yourself to growing up into that role in the church? It's a very necessary role, very much needed one, and here, one that is dignified in Scripture, given honor. And the last thing we see here about Anna is that she was a witness. Immediately, she, saw, she, she ran up and gave thanks, and then the next thing we hear about her is that she ran off to tell all the others who were waiting in hope for the Messiah that he had come. We've, get, we've challenged ourselves this year to become witnesses for Jesus in this community. I have a, 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 something to say a, that was discouraging to me um, at the spectacular. Nothing about the spectacular was scur- discouraging. I, I loved it. It was one of, the, one of the first ones I've actually enjoyed myself. <laughs> Um, but there was a, a man here from uh, another church in town, a longtime Bloomington native, and he loved it, and he talked to me for a while, and he was here with his wife, and he said, 
He just threw this in there. He didn't mean anything by it. It was discouraging to me as I thought about it. What he said was, you know, it's the strangest thing. I've been, I've been uh, working for the telephone company my whole life here in Bloomington. I've been in almost everybody's house. I, I know everybody in Bloomington. I was telling my wife, looking around this room, I don't know a soul here. It's the weirdest thing. And you can understand why that would be discouraging. What it, what it really means is, though we've moved to the west side, we're not a west side church. We've said ourselves, we feel God has put us over here, placed us here, called us here to, be a, to have a ministry in this part of Bloomington. And we've barely begun it. That's what it means. Now, it's discouraging. It was discouraging for me to realize that. But it was a good, it was a good challenge. I've not lost heart. We've set before us a good goal. And we need to continue to strive to be faithful to it, to keep plowing and planting and hope. That my hope is that ten years, ten spectaculars from now, the same kind of man will come in here and know ten people from Bloomington. Oh, I didn't know you went to church here. Good to see you. I think that that would be a wonderful thing if God brought it about. And that's the kind of hope we should have for this church as God has planted us here. We want to have a community to more than the university. You know, most of us here came to town because of the university. But we want to have a ministry to the people of Bloomington as well. So let's be witnesses like Anna. Be filled with joy and excitement at the arrival of the Lord and go and tell people about him. That's all I have. So let's give our attention now to the Lord in prayer. Let's call upon him that he would grant that we, all of us, would see him. That even now by faith we would fix our gaze on the Lord Jesus Christ. That we would be caught up into glory and to love of him. We would rejoice in hope at the thought of his, appear, uh, his arrival, his appearing. That we would give ourselves to watching and praying. That we would love the lost around us, the people of Bloomington. Tell them excitedly about what God has done in sending his son Jesus into this world. And offer to God the sacrifices of an obedient heart. Let's pray for these things. Father, we do ask that you would fill us with all joy and hope and believing and with all obedience to your word. We ask that you would transform us into the image of your son and make us like him. Make us like Simeon and like Anna in their godliness. Make us righteous and devout. Make us prayer warriors and saints. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.